Let's give Bishop Odom a good Bendale welcome to this pulpit today. God bless him. Well, thank you very much, and praise the Lord, everybody. Thank you. You may be seated. Let me visit with you just for a few minutes, then we'll take you to the scriptures. And by the help of the Lord, we'll teach the Bible class or preach the Sunday sermon. Thank you, Pastor Moore, for letting me come back to Bendale. And because I first found Jesus just not too far south of here, I do consider this neck of the woods as coming home. Mother and Daddy was converted in Pascagoula in 1950. That's been 72 years ago. Where's the little man that's going to be baptized today? Stand up, son. On May the 5th, 1950, I have a picture of my mother standing out in the old big water pond where they baptized in those days in Pascagoula. And it's a memorial picture for me. I have a picture of me baptizing my precious daughter that is deceased, Amanda, when she was just a child. And this will be a remarkable day for you. When this pastor bishop buries you, baptizes you in Jesus' name, there's going to be a remarkable miracle that will take place in your life. I know that to be a fact, son, because when I was just eight years old, and the bios just north of Pascagoula, out near the old veneer mill, old Brother Ramsey baptized me in Jesus' name, and it changed my life. And for me, that's been some 68 years ago. I'm glad to be with you today for your water baptism. You may be seated. Um, I have learned to make myself at home, and I want to comment on this. I guess you all know that this is the prayer list that pastor brings out to the front, and it's anointed and prayed over. It moved me when I saw him doing that. Now, I didn't bring my prayer Bible with me today. I brought an old preaching Bible with me. I don't know the difference between prayer and preaching sometimes. But uh, I didn't bring the Bible that my wife and I, she's got one just like mine, that we're sitting together every morning for about 60 to 90 minutes, and every evening about 60 to 90 minutes, and we read the Bible out loud and we comment to each other. You've never heard, heard such preaching in all of your life until she gets started. That's my prayer Bible. And this reminded me of it. Did you know that your name is in my prayer Bible at home? That's right. And your name is in that Bible along with about another 200 preachers' names. And when I saw him hold the list, it reminded me that we're not just going down this list as a Pentecostal rosary. We're giving these requests unto the Lord. And I have no clue what these people need, but I felt the Holy Ghost today when we prayed over this list. And for those of you that came forward for prayer, what a remarkable privilege it is that time is allotted and blocked off in public church, that we implement the Bible 
and that is to pray for the sick. Pastor, it's good to be with you. I love you very, 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 very much. In Jesus' name. And dear Sister Moore, I'm looking for you. There she is. Love you very, very much, and I've known you for a long, long time. And I think I see your mother and daddy sitting back in the amen corner back there. God bless the Fords. I have loved them for years and years. It's good to be with all of you. I am sorry that Sister Odom can't be here. I tend to preach much, much longer when she's not with me. So if you're thinking I'm going to rush to get back to her, well, I'm, I'm anxious to see her now, but we're not going to rush through this Bible lesson. I want to talk about my message before I have you to stand in honor of my reference to the Scripture. Usually when I preach, I have one precise book, chapter, and verse, or verses to read from when I preach. But there's a lot of verses in this Bible message that I'm going to be giving to you today that I don't think I'm being wise to have you to stand and let me read most of the 18th and 19th chapters of the book of John to you. I'm assuming that most of you have an apostolic background, a Bible background, and you have a grasp and an understanding of the Scripture. So let me introduce the sermon while you're seated, and then I'll have you to stand momentarily. The some three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus Christ was now winding down. It started when he went down to a place that we know called Enon, or Bethabara, where John the Baptist was baptizing. This is the first time that Jesus is found in the Scriptures again for some 18 years. For the last time that he was found in the Scriptures, as far as the recorded documents of the Scripture is concerned, was when he was a pre-teenager. 12 years old, and guess where they found him? Um, let me get away with this. They found him in the church house. Uh, they found him in the temple, the state church of Israel. And his mother said to him, son, your father and I, referring to his earthly guardian, Joseph, has sought thee sorrowing. And after that experience, Jesus Christ went back to Nazareth and for the next 18 years, he became obedient and submissive, and he grew in wisdom and in stature. But for 18 years, between age 12 and age 30, Jesus is not mentioned in the Scripture. But it begins that when John was baptizing at Enon or Bethabara, that Jesus went to the baptism of John. And when John, who, by the way, was the second cousin of Jesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John, were first cousins. And when John saw Jesus coming down into the water, he formally introduced him to the audience at the baptismal service. And John said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus waded out a little bit deeper. 
Sometimes we all better step into the water. And when Jesus approached the great John the Baptist, who lived in the deserts, he was a strange-looking preacher. His diet was kind of unique within itself. But his ministry was like a magnet. It drew anybody and everybody to hear him preach. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes and rulers, Roman soldiers, publicans, and you name it. Jerusalem emptied itself to go out and hear this man preach. All of Judea went out to him. Just for the record's sake, the estimated population of Jerusalem during the days of John the Baptist and Jesus was nearing 200,000 people. And the Bible says that all of Jerusalem and all of Judea went out to hear him. But on this day, a candidate came for baptism. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. And when John saw him, it was his first time to officially meet this man. However, they did have some connections. For you see, when both Elizabeth and Mary were expecting their sons, Mary left Nazareth and went down to the hill country of Judea. And when Mary, who was uh, different, she wasn't married, but she was expecting and Jesus was not an illegitimate child. When Mary walked into the house of Elizabeth and Mary, the mother of Jesus spoke to Elizabeth, the mother of John. When Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, the babe in the womb of Elizabeth, the same one that's about to baptize Jesus, he leaped in the womb of his mother. And there was a spiritual phenomenon that took place when the days of Elizabeth was fulfilled for her to be delivered. And the Bible says, and when John was born, he was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Thirty years later, the evangelist John is baptizing Roman soldiers Hebrew publicans and Hebrew Pharisees. And here comes a man that knew no sin and neither was God found in his mouth. And when Jesus stood face to face and eye to eye with the man that was going to baptize him, John broke that unique moment of silence and stare. <laughs> and John said, I have need to be baptized of thee. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, said, It behooveth us to fulfill all righteousness. And he suffered him, or he baptized him. Now, three and a half years have quickly flown by. Some of the greatest sermons that will ever be preached fell from the lips of this evangelist from Galilee. His great sermons that we call parables, some 33 of them, were taught from Jerusalem all the way up to the northern shores of Galilee. He had performed miracles ranging from turning water into wine to telling a woman, if you drink the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. 
to telling a blind man to go wash in water, the pool of Siloam, to walking on the water, and then rebuking the tempestuous stormy sea of Galilee. He told the paralytic to walk. He straightened up Abraham's daughter's boat over back, no doubt suffering from some form of crippling paralysis. He told a man to stretch forth his withered hand. And when he reached forth, and listen to me, Pentecostal, there's always a risk when you're reaching for Jesus. And he reached out the withered hand, and in front of everybody, the withered, dried-up limb suddenly was made whole like the other. Everything that Jesus did, he went about doing good. Now the sermons are about over. The miracles are about over. The parables are over. And now Jesus is in Gethsemane praying until the sweat becomes as great drops of blood. We know he prayed for at least three hours. Trust me on that. And when he finished his third hour, something tapped me on the shoulder that I want to ask a question, but I'm kind of scared to because I know I'm a visitor. But I'm going to make myself at home. When is the last time we prayed one hour? And he prayed three hours and he prayed until passionately his sweat became as great drops of blood. And at the end of the third hour, Check it on your clock, 60 minutes, 120 minutes. At the 180-minute mark, here comes the sloppy kiss of Judas. They blindfolded him, my Lord. They handcuffed him. And they led him away like he was nothing but public enemy number one. Peter denied him. The other apostles forsook him. And he was alone before Caiaphas, Pontius Pilate, and King Herod. Now it's time for me to talk about what I'll be preaching. Would you stand? I will not cause you to go to your Bible. I will just ask you to trust my prepared notes. You see, they brought Jesus to Pilate after he had his first trial before the Levitical law of self-righteous priests and Levites. They brought Jesus to Pilate, and scholars have taught me, Pastor, that it was about 8 o'clock in the morning when this man who had been awake all night, his last meal was a Passover lamb and unleavened bread, and that's been now some 14 hours ago. And now he's before Pilate. And Pilate is the attorney general representing Rome. Pilate is the voice of Caesar in all of Judea. And when they brought Jesus to Pilate, his first question was to the Jews. What accusation do you bring against him? Now you're talking about a non-answer. What they said to Pilate was a non-answer. All they said with a brush off, well, if he wasn't a malefactor or just a criminal, we would not have brought him to you. That's a bunch of nothing. 
What has he done? And they had not one thing to bring against him in an accusation. And that brings me now to my text, John chapter 18. Verse 33. Then Pilate entered the judgment hall again and called Jesus. And he said to him, Art thou the king of the Jews? That's his first question to Jesus. I'm talking about this is the attorney general representing Rome. And his first question, art thou the king of the Jews? We'll get to the context of the whole subject in a few minutes. His second question is in verse 35. Pilate answered at the end of verse 35, what hast thou done? And verse 38, the third and final question of Pilate to Jesus, what is truth? This is a real interrogation. This is real, some criminal cross-examination. Are you a king? What have you done? And what is truth? Before this trial procedure was nearly over, Someone come to the perfect shoulder. The perfect is the governor. Someone come to the perfect shoulder and said, look, I've got a message from your wife. And your wife just woke up from a nightmare. and She sent me to you to tell you, have nothing to do with this just man. And when Pilate heard about the nightmare that Mrs. Pilate had, all he wanted to do was get rid of him, turn him loose. And he, in a way, tried to turn Jesus loose. But I suppose one of the original council cultures, I suppose one of the first woke generations, raised its voice. And they screamed at Pilate, If you let him go, it's treason. We have no king but Caesar. What I want you to hear me say now, you feel the Holy Ghost, brother? Would you just hold your hands up in Jesus' name and just keep looking at me for a moment? This is the Lord with me. Pilate made an attempt to get rid of this man. The Bible says that Pilate, when he first got through interrogating Jesus, he looked at the audits and he said, Behold the man! But after a few verses and a bit more interrogation, Pilate comes back and he says, Behold your king. There was a revelation in this perfect theology. The governor's belief system. All he knew was Apollo and the other 11 major mythological gods of the Roman Empire. And standing before him, he saw Jesus as man and before his cross-examination was over, he saw him as king. Now, with all that introduction, I know you are standing with an abated breath because you want to know what in the world is he going to title it? I have none. But when I'm done, I'm going to preach as much Jesus and as much Calvary to you that I can preach, and I promise you so help me God and his holy angels. If you'll buy into the text of my preaching, 
there'll be a move of God in this house. Because you can't preach Calvary and you can't preach Jesus without there being a move of God. Place your Bibles down, please. Lift your hands and let's have a moment of prayer before you are seated. And you may be seated. Now your Bible should be closed and I'm going to depend on you to trust my accuracy of the scriptures and that I will not mislead you with a misquote. You see it was in verse number, um, it was in verse number 5 of John chapter 19 that Pilate said, Behold the man! But it was nine verses later in verse 14 when the trial was officially over, that the perfect of Rome, the governor of Rome, Pilate said, Behold your king. Between verse 5 and verse 14, there was a phenomenal revelation that in Jesus Christ is both humanity and deity as the almighty God. Now the Bible would teach us that when Pilate did vainly attempt to release Jesus, the mob screamed and says, No, away with him, and release unto us Barabbas, who really was a threat to their society. Barabbas was more than a political prisoner to Rome. He was a mass murderer. He was a killer. He was a rapist. He was a threat to their very safe way of life. And the one that they were calling to be sent to death came to do nothing but to bring them life and that life more abundantly. And they preferred the spirit of darkness of Barabbas above the spirit of light of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the questions were finished, and again, Pilate asked Jesus only three questions and the trial was over. What have you done? Well, let's talk about that in just a moment. Art thou a king? We'll talk about that in just a moment. And what is truth? And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But Pilate, to go through all of the expected procedures before a man like Jesus would be led to an executing cross, he scourged him. That means they strip him of his clothes. They tie him to a stake. Usually they blindfold the victim. And we do know that it was a Roman's whip with a cat of nine tails. One whip with nine endings. And there were sharp pieces of even metal and bone gravel that was entwined in the cat of the nine tails. And the process of the beating would take 40 stripes. But to be sure that they didn't miscount, they would always stop at 39. And that's why Paul would later write the Corinthians 
And he said, five times received I 40 stripes, save one that would always stop in fear of going one too many. And if that would happen, that would be a violation and the person being beaten could be given their immediate lifetime freedom. So I'm assuming to be safe, they stopped at 39 stripes. But you do the math. One whip with nine tails and say nine times 39. And you can figure how many different whips and lashes ripped the precious body of Jesus from the base of his skull to his very heel. And when they were finished, he was nothing much more than the picture of mincemeat. By the time the big burly Roman soldier fist had both slapped and smacked his precious face, he was nothing but a battered, blackened, and blue bruise. And Isaiah saw this prophetically. And Isaiah said about the appearance of Jesus that his visage was marred more than any man ever before or since. And there he stands, beaten with the cat of nine tails, crowned with thorns. And now they with sack religion throw a scarlet robe over his naked body. And they thrust a reed into his hand. And they bow and with desecration they say to him, Hell, King of the Jews! And Pilate still had wished to release him because the attorney general, the perfect of Rome, knew that this man had done nothing to be worthy of such humiliation and such agony and such persecution. And then before they led him away, the Bible says, and Pilate wrote a title. And the title in our English language is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Well, that upset the religious leaders in Jerusalem, such as Caiaphas and Anus and their colleagues in the priesthood and Levitical ministry. And they tried to correct Pilate. Don't write that he's the king of the Jews, but write that he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. I'm going to build the rest of my comments of the crucifixion of Jesus from the book of John. And when we harmonize the gospel books, we can find tidbits of information from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that will really complement what John writes. But before I take you to John, let me remind you that Isaiah, the great poetical prophet of the coming of the Messiah, spoke in what we have called the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. The Bible says he is dumb like a lamb before the slaughter. And like a sheep before the shearers, he opens not his mouth. You see, when the real harsh punishment began, Jesus never asked for mercy. He never asked, oh, hold on, that hurts. Give me just a minute before you smack my face again. 
Give me just a second to catch my breath before you rip my body with the cat of nine tails again. Oh, he was dumb like a lamb. He was silent like a sheep. And he opened not his mouth. But in fact, Jesus and Pilate had a conversation. And indeed, Jesus said 100, trust me, and 17 words to Pilate. And most of those words were in response, Art thou a king then? And when the 117 words of Jesus were finished, and the real main attraction started, facial slapping, spittle, filthy sputum, being flown through cursing Roman soldiers' lips, and touching and desecrating the sinless body, of Jesus Christ when all that was over John writes and he said and Pilate wrote a title and on the title by the original translation it says that Pilate wrote a placard and on the placard he wrote the same thing three times in the English Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews let me remind you that the Caiaphas and his cohorts and colleagues of the Aaronic priesthood, they defied Pilate. And they said, don't write that he's the king of the Jews, but write that he said it. Their theology is still messed up. Jesus never one time laid claim of being the king. But I want to remind you that 33 and a half years ago, there were wise men from a distant country in the east. They came to where the child was at. And they said, we found him, the king of Israel. I want you to know that if I could answer for Jesus today, and I cannot, all I can do is preach for him. But I wish that I could say, hey, Pilate, he never responded to your question, Art thou a king? Because he was dumb like a lamb. He was silent like a sheep. And Lord, if I can preach for you, let me preach to Bindale that you could have said this. Pilate, you better believe it. I'm the king of Israel. I'm the king of the Jews. I'm the king of heaven. I'm the king of the earth. I'm the king of Jerusalem. I'm the king of glory. I'm the king of beauty. I'm the king and only potentate. I am the king, the eternal one. I am king of kings and lord of lords. And I would to God while you're still standing and clapping your hands. I wish I could announce to every president and every monarch around the world today that Christ is the king. Christ is the governor. Christ. Christ. Pilate wrote the title, Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. Just over three and a half years ago, Philip found Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree and Philip said to his buddy, Nathaniel, we have found him, the king of Israel. And it was Nathaniel that said to Philip, can any good thing 
Come out of Nazareth. Don't get me started on that sermon. Nazareth was New Orleans. Nazareth was Los Angeles. Nazareth was San Francisco. Nazareth was Chicago. Nazareth was New Amsterdam. Nazareth was New York City and all the vile and the filth that those cities can offer. Nazareth was a second-rate place and nothing good come out of Nazareth. That's why Nathaniel asked, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Hey, guess what? I'm speaking for Jesus today. Well, here's what came out of Nazareth. The one that could turn water to wine. The one that could turn blindness to sight. The one that could turn silence to sound. The one that could resurrect the dead. The one that could forgive sins. The one that can say, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Ladies and gentlemen of Pendale, he's in the church today. Clap your hands unto the Lord. And he wrote it in all capital letters. Go home and review that. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He wrote it in three languages, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Now, you know me well enough. I struggle with my English language, and I never have figured out how to get my adjectives and adverbs properly placed. Diagram a sentence, me? Diagram a sentence, so I'm going to try it. So if I stumble through it, here's what Pilate wrote to Rome and to those around the world that spoke Latin. He wrote, Jesus, Nevrinis, Rex, Avadaforum. And unto the Greeks, Paul wrote, or check that, Pilate wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, Basilios. Ban Ahurand. And in Hebrew, he wrote the same thing. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And in the Hebrew tongue, Pilate wrote, Yeshua. Ha Nazarii. Yeah, Malek Ehurim. And the reason he wrote it in Latin. And the reason he wrote it in Greek. And the reason he wrote it in Hebrew, number one. He wanted all of Rome to know. Rome, and I'm a Roman, I'm Pilate, I've just found real power. And Rome, you think you have power. And you think because you can subjugate nations under your tremendous, terrible hand that you're the greatest power in the earth. But what Pilate was writing to Rome, and again he wrote, Jesus Neverinus Rex Arurum, he was saying, Rome and Latin, let me introduce to you the one that's greater than all of the mythological gods of the Roman Empire. Let me advise Caesar. Caesar, you're the world dictator. But I have found not just your match. I have found one that is stronger than you. 
And I've come to the country church in Bendel to tell you that Jesus said that all power is given unto me both in heaven and in earth. You want to talk about power? He has power to heal your body. He has power to set you free. He So why did he write it in Greek? And I pronounce it again on the same placard. He wrote the message three times. Basilios, Banaurand. He wrote it in Greek and he wanted to send a message to the philosophers of Athens and the philosophers of Thessalonica and the philosophers of Corinth, the sister of beauty cities in the country of Greece who built their life and their reputation on high intellect, on academia, on education, and on philosophy. You see, Athens and Thessalonica and Corinth can lay claim to the great Socrates and to the great Zeno and to the great Aristotle and the great Epicurea. But the reason that Pilate wrote in the Greek, Basilius ton auren, I want you gracious to know that I have just met wisdom. I've just met knowledge. I've just met intellect. I've just met academia. Are you listening to me, friend? I want you to know that not only does he have more power than Rome, he has more intellect than the Grecians have. That was okay until he wrote it the third time. And this time he wrote it in the language that the people that were really instigating this horrible death of Jesus Christ. What about it, big brother? You feel that Holy Ghost back there? Well, you ought to come up here. It's really up here. But don't sit down now because I'll ask you to stand back up. What about it, big brother? You feel that Holy Ghost back there? You see, I'm going to say some things that high priests don't want me to say. I'm going to say something to you that the power of Rome don't want me to say. I'm going to say something to you that philosophy of Greece does not want me to say. There's no problem too big for Jesus. There's no enemy too big for Jesus. He's bigger than cancer. He's bigger than depression. He's bigger than discouragement. My God Almighty, I feel this in the Holy Ghost. Some of you folks have brought some problems to church with you. Well, lay them down and put them on the shoulders of Jesus. He has come that you might have life and that life more abundantly. And the third time he wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, he wrote it in the homeland language, Hebrew, where everybody could read it. And he wrote these words in Hebrew. Yeshua, Hanazariah, Melech Yehudim, 
Jesus, the King of the Jews. I will be okay if you want to charge me for being repetitious. That's your fault. It's my first time to preach here in almost a year. And I want to be sure that I get it across to you now. He wanted Rome to know. He wanted Greece to know. And he wanted this bunch of self-righteous high priests and Levites to know. Look at him. Behold the man and behold the king. And the perfect of Rome could lay claim. I have served as the perfect for Rome in Judea since the year of 26. I came to power because my cohort, Securius, had the favor of Caesar. And because Securius was a pet to Caesar, I, Pontius Pilate, became the perfect in the year of 26 AD in Judea. But I want you to know here in the year of 33 and one half AD, standing before me is not just another man. Standing before me is the God man. Standing before me is not just another king. Standing before me is the king eternal. I would to God that I could take myself out of the pulpit and introduce you to Jesus Christ. In this house today is the one that's greater than your sickness, your disease, your affliction, whatever your problems might be. Art thou a king? What a question to ask the accused. I've already covered that. I've already spoke for Jesus. And Jesus could have let him know, but he was dumb like a lamb. He didn't present his case why he should be set free. And the second question, the attorney general don't go try to find that in your concordance. I've made that one up, all right? But he was, the, he was the voice of Rome that was actually prosecuting Jesus Christ. And his second question was, what have you done? Did you really mean it that I'm under no rush today? The reason I'm asking it seems like it's got mighty quiet out here. Is it time for your nap already? What have you done? What have I done? I'm going to answer for Jesus. What have I done? Well, I turned water into wine. What have I done? I healed a nobleman's son. What have I done? I healed a centurion servant. What, what, what have I done? I cooled a fevered brow. What have I done? I took two white perch and a few biscuits. Oh, I took five loaves and two fish. And I fed 5,000. What have I done? I stood in a dark cave and I resurrected Lazarus. 
What have I done? I bound legions of devils in Gadara. What have I done? I told the paralytic at Bethesda to take up his bed and walk. What have I done? I told the blind to wash in Salem. And he, what have I done? I told the withered hand to be strong. What have I done? I'm going to go to Bendale, Mississippi on July the 10th. What have I, what have I done? I have called them out of darkness into this marvelous light. I've set them free from sins and transgressions. I have given them a new name. Let's don't force the issue, please. But because you feel it, clap your hands. Shout unto the Lord. Do it the best you could do. If you did, you can be seated. But if you didn't, I'm going to give you one more chance. I got his blessings. He said, preach. You know, I've been going from Bendale way too long, haven't I? I can't get back before next Sunday. No, no, no. Last time I was here, I got to feeding those so-called Pentecostal preacher Cheerios. I threatened to come back and preach a revival, but I, I can't do that either. No, no. There was one question that Pilate didn't ask Jesus. I sure wish you had asked him one more question. I, I wrote it down, and probably you're not interested in it, though, are you? Really? It's just my little thoughts. I just wish that Pilate would ask him one more question. But I know that you're not turned on with what I think about. <laughs> but because I can tell you don't want to know, I'm going to tell you. I wish Pilate would have asked Jesus now. I've already asked you, Jesus, are you the king? And I've already asked you, what have you done? But the question <laughs> that I wish that Pilate would have asked Jesus is, what you going to do? What am I going to do? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If you destroy this temple, save the date, Pilate. Mark it on your calendar. In three days, I'm going to resurrect it again. God, I felt the Holy Ghost when I said that. Uh, what you gonna do? Save the date. 72 hours from now, I'm gonna walk out of that grave. 
And I know they said to Jesus on Friday, if thou be the son of God, come off of that cross. I know they said to Jesus on Friday, if thou be the king, come off of that cross. I'm going to answer for Jesus one more time. Don't you doubt me. He could have come off of that cross. But I got to have a feeling that Jesus should have said, you just wait till Sunday morning. Coming off of the cross ain't nothing. But you wait till Sunday morning and I'm going to get up out of the ground. I guess... You folks have probably already heard the rumor that there's not much of a market for a 77-year-old preacher anymore because he can take chances and do things that makes people uncomfortable. So is that your wife sitting there by you? Or what is that she's holding? Whose? Who? Ours. <laughs> Mama, you trust him? Let daddy hold that baby. I just saw you dancing before the Lord, son. I want that baby to have the Holy Ghost upon its life from this day forward. I want that baby to know that your daddy shouted and danced. I want that baby to know that your mother clapped her hands and made a joyful noise unto the Lord. The reason Pentecost is in trouble today, we've turned our young people over to the world. I'm tired of losing our babies. I'm tired of losing our young people. Look at that, Jesus. Dad, sister, dad, sister, dad's. I wish that Pilate would have asked, well, what you going to do? <laughs> I want you all to sit down a few minutes. You know, I'm, I'm up here trying to speak Hebrew and Latin and Greek, brother. And when I ask you who that baby's was, did you say iron or Irish? Boy, it's good to be from Bendale. It's just good to be from Bendale. I guess if the angels would have asked Jesus, who is that little bunch down at Bendale right there? Jesus would probably say, am I mine? Am I mine? Those are my youngins. That's my son. That's my daughter. That's my church. If you'd ask, what you going to do? Jesus could have said, uh, Pilate, mark it on your calendar. <laughs> Save the date. 
50 days from today, I'm going to come blowing through an upper room in Jerusalem. Save the date, pilot. What am I going to do? Save the date, mark it on your calendar. I'm going to fill an upper room with the sound of a rushing mighty wind. So let me hurry up because it's going to be dark before I know it. If Pilate would have said, well, what you going to do? He would say, well, I'm going to build a church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, what you're going to do is going to be a Holy Ghost church. It's going to be a sanctified church. It's going to be a justified church. It's going to be a tongue-talking church. It's going to be a one-God church. It's going to be a Jesus-name church. It's going to be a holiness church. I wish Pilate would have asked him, well, what you going to do? What am I going to do if two or three are gathered together in my name? I'm going to be in the midst of them. What am I going to do if you trust in me and obey me? I'll give you the fat of the land. What am I going to do? I'm going to bind every foul and ungodly spirit against the church in these last days. I want to preach right now. Quit telling me what the devil's doing. Let me tell you what God is doing. Let's come back to some reality here. And the final question that the perfect of Rome asked the accused, what is truth? Now really, do you think that there's enough hours left in this day for me to stand in this pulpit and exhaust and tire out me telling you what truth is. Jesus was dumb like a lamb. He was silent like a sheep. But Jesus, you've let me preach for you now. You called me when I was nine. I preached my first sermon when I was 18. This is all I know. By now, Lord, I've been in a pulpit teaching or preaching over 16,000 times. Let me answer for you just one more time. I think I just heard a voice from heaven say, go ahead and answer for me. What is truth? First of all, Jesus is the way and Jesus is the truth. 
What is truth? Truth is a highway of holiness. What is truth? Truth is the word of God. We find him as the creator in Genesis and as the eternal millennium in the book of Revelation. We find him as the king in Matthew, as the servant in Mark, as the man in Luke, and as deity in John. What is truth? There's one Lord, and there's one faith, and there's one baptism. What is truth? Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord, and thou shalt love him with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And with all thy strength, what is truth? Truth is in the house to heal the sick. Truth is in the house to set you free. Truth is in the house to forgive you of your sins. I got some bad news. I got 20, 31 32 pages, and I'm only on page four. Oh, God. For the time has come. That my Father seeketh for those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. So the trial was winding down. What an interrogation. Man, that would just stump anybody. Are you a king? And he was silent. What have you done? And he was silent. What is truth? And he was silent. And Pilate stood and said, Behold the man. And nine verses later, Behold the king. Don't even challenge the theology that I possess in this pulpit now. I believe the perfect, the governor representing Caesar who had been in power now for some eight years and he would remain in power for three more years after the execution and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Pilate symbolically when he was finished with those hard questions and his cross-examination, he couldn't get the accused to even participate in the questionnaire. He opened not his mouth. And Pilate in frustration and exasperation said, Don't you know that I have the power to release thee or to crucify thee? And in those 117 words, Jesus Christ said you would have power to do nothing except my father would give it to you God I feel the Holy Ghost I felt this in prayer this morning when I knelt at the chair you can do nothing and I can do nothing if the Lord God Almighty doesn't help us we can't start our day without the help of God we can't keep our balance without the help of God we'll go berserk and lunatic without the 
help of God. We can't overcome sin without the help of God. But thank God we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. And nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Trial is over. I'm not real sure if it's your personal verdict and jurisdiction if Pilate adhered to the frightful wisdom of Miserous Pilate have nothing to do with this man. If you don't live for Jesus, neighbor, he's going to become your biggest nightmare. If you don't love Jesus, neighbor, he's going to become your biggest nightmare. And the spirit of Pilate's wife is alive and well in Pentecostal churches. Have nothing to do with Jesus. The spirit of Pilate's wife is in Pentecostal pulpits. Have nothing to do with Jesus. I'm going to be real honest with your church. I've gone to some churches the last two or three years. And I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it. Had it not been for the name of Pentecost or Apostolic on the church sign out in the lawn, I wouldn't even have known I was in a Pentecostal church. They sing meaningless songs of nothing but fluff. The music sounds like a hard rock session. Preachers in Pentecost are stripping themselves down to sockless feet and nothing but tennis shoes and sandals, blue jeans and a sweatshirt because they're trying to make Jesus to be accepted by everybody. I want you to know you never compromise holiness to win the world. You never compromise the doctrine to win the world. You never compromise prayer to win the world. You never compromise worship to win the world. But the Spirit is alive and well in Pentecostal churches. Don't do anything. Have nothing to do with Jesus. So would you let me have about two minutes on my own? Let me just kind of do something because I need to do it. You know how I clap my hands? My turn now. My turn. Because that has everything to do with Jesus. You know why? Clip my hands and stand on my tiptoes and I still call it leaping, but I don't think my feet ever get off of the ground. Because it has something to do with Jesus. You know why I still dance in the Holy Ghost? When you don't get old enough and mature enough, Brother Odom, to stop all that cutting up, I ain't never going to get that mature and I ain't never going to get that old. It's like a burning fire shut up in my bones. Well, I can see that you're some of the most disrespectful and ill-mannered Pentecostals I've ever met. I guess for two minutes, and look at what you're doing. You're trying to show me how to clap your hands? Well, get with it then. You're trying to show me how to lift your voice? Then get with it then. You're trying to show me how to leap for joy? Then get with it.
And all the while, Pilate, the wise spirit is saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. You better stand to your feet. You better clap your hands and lift your voice. What a privilege. You know I love you, but um, I don't care if you don't have a clock in the house. My body clock says you're done, preacher. <laughs> what a privilege to be back home in the swamp. So because he's considered to be the most frequently and accurately quoted Roman historian, his name is Eusebius. In his theological writings of Jesus Christ and the history of Rome during the days of Christ, the perfect of Rome who could have released Jesus, <laughs> he caved in to the cancel culture. Preacher, I love you. Your generation of pastors are going to deal with some things that my generation did not have to deal with. This spirit that is circulating in this, and I want to be a kind person here, but the perverseness of transgenderism, sex changing, neutral sex identities. I'll stop there. This is just the tip of the iceberg of what's coming. And thank you, nine Supreme Court justices that finally had a little bit of a backbone the last couple of weeks. But you're not going to be able to pass enough laws to correct the sins of America. But, but if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Don't wet your pretty church. Come, come. A little bit. Not much. And you see BS come here. And you see BS. How'd you like the way I ask you? It's like if you don't get over here, I'm gonna get you over here. Be seated. And Pilate held on for three more, actually two and a half more years. But because of the civil disturbance that broke out after the death of that Galilean evangelist, Pilate stood before the priest and before the Roman placard, the Latin placard, and the Greek placard, and the Hebrew placard, and he said, bring me a basin. I am innocent of this man's blood. And Eusebius, the most accurately quoted Roman historian, of the theologies of politics of Rome and, and the Hebrews. It said that he, Pilate, was banished. And he spent his last days doing this, according to the historians, wringing his hands. And he said, I'm innocent. I find no fault in him. Behold the man. Behold the king. 
would you rather I release your king or release unto you the number one social threat to Jerusalem, Barabbas? I'm innocent. And it was said that Caesar called him home and said, Pilate, it's either you take your own life or I'm going to take your life for you because of the insurrection. And it was said by Eusebius that his hands stayed wet and he wringed them and he was screamed to the top of his lungs, I'm innocent! And it was growing every day. But Jesus paid it all. It's not the will of God that you wring your hands going to bed and wring your hands when you get up. And you're worried about everything imaginable and the devil has put you under such stress and your life is so complex in the spiritual world that you're just wringing yourself out. You're mentally exhausted. You're physically finished. Your only hope is at the most about 50 steps to an old-fashioned altar. Your only hope is about 50 steps to an old rugged cross. Stop wringing your hands. Stop wringing your mind. Stop it. Stop it. I come against it in the name of Jesus. Cast all of your cares upon him. best thing for you to do is get your soul clean. Get your spirit clean. Get your mind clean. Get your eyes and your ear and your conversation clean. You're not neutral. You have no choice in the matter. You do have something to do with Jesus. And it was Pilate that said, what shall I do with him? I close with that question. What will you do with him? Come on, big man. You lead the way. It's okay, son. Come on. Put them big hands up. That's it. That's it. That's a little babe in the eyes of Jesus Christ. Who's next? I got to do something with Jesus. I don't want to quit. I, I, I can't keep wringing my life out. Others and others and others. I need a voice. I need a lamentation in the house. I need a lamentation in the house. Would anyone break through in an intercession lamentation and call upon the Lord Jesus?
feel like I feel like I'm saying this thing. Oh boy. Come on, men. Come on, men. We worship you as we worship you, Jesus.
There is no doubt in my spirit, my mind and heart this morning, the presence of the Lord is in this place today. 
I know the bishop didn't give us a title for the message before he ever even got to the latter part of his message. And I'm going to say this not out of boldness, but just because it's the truth. Holy Ghost said, done quicken. The real question is going to be for you and I now. What are we going to do with the message we heard today? What are we going to do with the presence we felt today? What are we going to do with the last hour and hour and a half of the visitation of God and the Holy Ghost in our midst? What are we going to do now? It can either become a dream or it can become a nightmare. But you and I personally make that decision today tomorrow but somewhere along this journey we got to make the call we got to make the decision there was a masterpiece preached in this house today and the master walked up and down these aisles and he reached and he touched and he gave us the answer to our anxiety he gave us the answer to our singing. He gave us the answer to all the places where we seem to come up short. And we're all there. We're all there. The bishop would even agree with me. And we need God. It's a time to draw nearer than we've ever drawn. It's a time we prayed more than we've ever prayed. It's a time, amen. Because time is running out. Don't underestimate what took place in this service today. Don't underestimate who walked up and down these aisles and walked into our midst today to reach into our hearts and hear our cry and give us a visitation with His presence. God, break up the fallow ground. God, stir up the old callous heart. Stir me, God, like I've never been stirred. Young people, this is the greatest thing that you'll ever experience. I'm telling you, the world with all of its lights and all of its lies won't touch it. Won't ever touch it. Won't ever touch it. This is the greatest thing that you can get a hold of. This is the greatest thing that you can let get a hold of you. A hold of your mind and spirit. And give yourself unto God the touch of God and the power of God in this old wicked world that we're living the church still has the power the body called Jesus God help me as a pastor to have more compassion for the body called the church and a love for it and a willingness to die for it that he can have revival folks I'm telling you God's working in Bendale Mississippi and I'm, I'm determined to let him work. I'm determined to let him work. And he's working. My, my, what a word, what a presence. It's been with us today in this house. Praise God. Why don't we, I know normally we do birthdays and all. We're gonna, we'll pick that up next Sunday. Hopefully that won't be offensive to no one. But uh, we're going to go, Hunter, you can go get ready if you'd like. Amen. I'm going to go baptize Hunter in the lovely name of Jesus. I'm believing this will be a turning point for Hunter today.
man and God moves upon his behalf and his soul as a young, young man. Amen. Giving himself over to God and giving himself over to the Holy Ghost. I'm telling you, the world's full of junk out there. There's many avenues you can take out there. But I thank God this morning for truth and the revelation of truth. Not only just in baptism in water in his name, but baptism in the Holy Ghost. With the evidence of speaking in tongues as the Spirit of God gives us the utterance. What an experience. What an experience. Love you today. Appreciate you. All that's come, the guests, God bless you. Amen. To come to be a part of this with us. No service tonight. Amen. Keep the bishop. He's going to stay and visit with us a while. And uh, so we love you. Appreciate you. Let's make our way to the back. God bless you.